The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. So in approximately 14 hours, uh, things will change. The, the date will change as it does every day, uh, but with this, the month will change too. And also, um, a natural experience that we have every you know, 30 days or so, and then the year will change. Uh, 2023 will give way to 2024. And we recognize that years tend to be the more memorable moments in the cycle of time and how we often mark experiences and anniversaries. And even in speaking to the ascension of Christ and the inauguration of the church, we most commonly use um, years, noting that it's been some 2,000 plus years since such times have passed. And so when the final minute of the 24th hour of today completes, there will be some who are celebrating in large groups together, some who will be watching on their televisions as the world celebrates and they privately join from their homes, and some who will be rudely interrupted from their sleep as their enthusiastic neighbors ignite firecrackers to bring in the new year. But some things will not happen this year. They will be in future turns of future years, but not this one. Notably, the 10,000-year clock presently under construction in a remote mountain in Texas will not tick at midnight, a clock that, by design, when completed, will tick one time every year, bong once a century, and cuckoo once a millennium, a clock that was designed to help the world consider the place and value of long-term thinking. And with this also to provoke us to consider our responsibility to those who will come after us. So it's a fascinating project that reminds us on the macro scale what we are doing on the smallest levels each year ourselves. The ticks for us, though, moving much faster. It's not just one tick every year. Rather, it's tick, tick, tick. We know we we have a very clear sense of the, the passing of time. And the bong strikes every hour, and we watch these things closely And there may be even an urgency that wells up within us because time is passing. So what will we do? What have we accomplished? How close are we to our goals? Uh, What will we aim to do better this next year, this fresh start? And I think about this each year when preparing for the message of the year, the, the, the first of the year, the turn of the year. This one, by timing, coming on the the eve of the new year. Usually it's right at the turn of the year or very soon thereafter, but this year it's at the eve of the year, eve of the new year. So over the last few years, um, we've had messages on the the necessity of a new birth, John 3, 1 to 21. It was an emphasis on, you know, we, we, we think about renewing, we think about new years. Have you thought about your need for new birth? And it was a, an exhortation to consider to be born again. For those of you who have been born, have been born again, to be encouraged and, and strengthened and, and to even have something to point our unbelieving friends toward. But for those who are not in Christ, to consider, here's the fresh start that you need. You need to be born again. And then that message, that particular year, was followed up with a message from Psalm 1, his delight in the law of Yahweh. And, and that's what introduced 2022 for us, that, that rooting ourselves in, will we be like that tree that's by the streams of water that produces its fruit in and out of season? And then, introducing 2023, we had a, a resolution to worship Yahweh from Psalm 15. And so I wrestled a bit with how I might exhort us to bring in this new year. And I plainly see that the Psalms is a valuable place to look for such exhortations. I'm, I'm a student of the Psalms. I really, really enjoy the Psalms. I, I think they have such rich theology. They drive us to worship. And there's also the advantage that they very much have the capacity to stand alone and can give us a, a particular exhortation for a season, for a moment, or for a change of seasons, as it were. And so, as I shared on Wednesday night in prayer meeting, I considered Uh, two different psalms to introduce um, and effectively celebrate, or or even more properly expressed, calibrate this new year. And so I was back and forth between Psalm 127 and Psalm 90, and I was trying to decide which which might I pick, which would be most helpful to the local church body, which would fit this season, as it were. And so having a view to Psalm 127, I may have exhorted us not to work and labor in vain, uh, reflecting on its opening half, Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late, 
O you who eat the bread of painful labors, for in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. Or, having a view to Psalm 90 that we read this morning, I may have exhorted us to consider the the temporal nature of man and, and that we would be wise to join Moses in requesting, specifically requesting, Lord, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And so if our days are fleeting and if every year passing remind us that we are that much closer to being in the presence of the Lord, to enjoying him and to receiving reward and to to all such things coming to a proper conclusion, Lord, would you give us wisdom, wisdom to number our days. And these would have been, I would think, wonderful texts to exhort us toward, a, again, a proper calibration of a new year. And I view such opportunities as a time to calibrate our focus, to help us be more sure that we will achieve our aims, as it were. Now, I'm not always appreciated the need to calibrate or to adjust something for for proper accuracy and function i've uh i'd say my youth i just figured if you hit it harder kicked it harder tried harder it just works better why why bother calibrating and and trying to focus something and making it work like it ought to but there's a value to calibrating things and to to directing them as they they should work and and if you're a hunter then you definitely know the value of calibrating a scope so those who are hunters they really appreciate proper calibration again of their scopes it's and it's invaluable to their success and like some of you even if you're not a deer hunter or other hunter of sorts, you've probably heard stories of men who are deer hunting lining up their shot for a trophy animal, or so they would say, that will not only feed their family, but will bring great bragging rights among their friends. And they pull the trigger only to see 15 yards off, maybe a few feet off the ground, a little puff of dirt. They miss their shot. They don't get to take home that prize trophy. They don't get to feed their family with this large buck this year. And after they return home and further investigate the matter, it comes out that maybe a family member had, oh yeah, oops, oops, I I bumped your rifle, it fell over, but I put it right back up. Not a big deal to most of us. But what happened is it just ever so slightly bumped that scope and it took it out of the proper calibration. It was slightly off. And because of this, they failed to hit their target. They missed their mark because they were not properly calibrated in their aim. And so I think about that, and I think about how will we calibrate our hearts for this new year. It's not that, well, we're in danger of being bumped, and, and now we're going to walk in, in just slight disobedience that will get worse throughout the year, and hopefully we'll have a restart at the beginning of the next year. I recognize that's not our, our focus or our concern, but there is that opportunity to say, you know what, in God's providence, he has designed days and weeks and months and seasons and years And they do provide us an opportunity to reflect and to think back on, okay, this has gone well, and and I pursue joyful obedience, and I struggle to hear, but how can I do better? And so there is an opportunity to examine, evaluate, and to calibrate ourselves. And so if we're not going to do this with a view to Psalm 127, with a view to not laboring in vain and and trusting the Lord for rest, or if we're not going to do it in view of Psalm 90, Lord, give us wisdom to number our days, then perhaps... We can do this with a view to the conclusion of our work in Philippians 2, 14 through 18. And with this, you might be thinking, well, that's not especially inspirational. I know why you did this, because you were in Philippians 2 for so long, and you didn't want to finish the year not finishing that section that you thought was going to be one week, maybe two weeks, but not three weeks. That's what you're up to. No, there is that advantage, but... Maybe you're also concluding, well, okay, so it's not inspirational. You know, also, it just doesn't give me a unique charge to set the course of the year. I understand we've been in Philippians, but I wanted something to, to kind of, again, to do that work of calibration, to kind of give me that shot in the arm of exhortation. It doesn't give me that. It doesn't give me that, again, that charge to set the course for a new year. But I would argue it does. It does. Because here we will receive the charge to rejoice and to share our joy with one another. And the stakes of a proper calibration here are uniquely high because there is a profound risk for us. If, we, if we're off here, if we miss this, there's the risk that if we fail to choose joy, then we may well find ourselves in the dangerous company of those who fill their hearts and mouths with grumbling and disputing. Remember, the very antithesis to joy. And with this, 
we may well find that we have come short of a proper view to a necessary and precious expression of long-term thinking. Not the kind of long-term thinking that builds clocks inside mountains, but the kind of long-term thinking that has a view that some 2,000 years ago, Christ ascended to the Father's right hand, and soon he will return. And so again, this is not a mountain clock calibration, but a day of Christ calibration. It is a view to the day of Christ that comes at the center of the two commands that frame our text. The one that we've already worked through, namely the command to abstain from wicked conduct that is all too common among man, that of grumbling and disputing, and the other, which is before us today, a command to be full and overflowing with joy and sacrificial service to Christ. So with a view to having our, our coming of our new year and the, the calibrating look to the day of Christ and the joy of sacrificial service, let's refresh our attention to our work in Philippians. And with this, we'll once more, likely the last time in this study, read from the beginning of chapter 2 through verse 18. So we're going to read Philippians 2 verses 1 through 18. Paul writes, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this way of thinking yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. By being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast, because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, I had us read this fuller text together because it provides a necessary framing for our passage, something that I hope is increasingly clear to many of you who have walked through these texts with us. But having such matters in view, I want to, to briefly refresh our work in verse 14 through 16 so as to properly understand our engagement in verses 17 and 18. And as is plainly before us, the passage opened with a, a very clear command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Again, do all things without grumbling or disputing. There are no, expression, no, there are no exceptions expressed here. And none that we need to, to busy ourselves looking after either. And yet we often want just that, to hear that there are permissible exceptions. Do all things without grumbling or disputing here's the exception, here's the caveat, here's, you know, when you have a bad day or when someone frustrates you or when they, they cut you off or when they treat you badly or when things are not as they ought to be, the command is very plain. We've walked through this, we've beat ourselves up over it, we recognize what does the scriptures require of us, do all things without grumbling or disputing. disputing. And, and we want on some measure, at least uh, I think I do, I think if we're honest with ourselves, on some measure we, we're 
we would be welcoming to some exceptions, perhaps. And the reason for that is because this is a really challenging command. And as unattractive and as embarrassing as it may be, most of us still naturally drift into these offenses. We tend to grumble. We tend to dispute. And like many things that are ugly, but that have been become that have become part of the common experiences of man, we just tend to forget just how ugly they really are. So we need to give some attention to the nature of these offenses if for no other reason than to help us calibrate our hearts by first recognizing just how far they very well may have strayed. Maybe somebody bumped the scope, as it were, and we didn't realize, boy, that we're, we're a little bit off now. We need, to, we need to be restored in that regard. Or, again, as it may be for many of us, the places that we will go if not kept under close watch. So maybe we're not drifting here yet, but we are prone to this. And so a helpful starting place is to understand the offense by way of, our, of defining our terms. And when working through these matters a few weeks ago, I shared with you that I found John MacArthur's definitions to be helpful in their, their concise clarity here. So for grumbling, he states, it is a negative response to something unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointing arising from the self-centered notion that it is undeserved. Again, hear that for what it was, because it's ugly, and we need to see, wow, that's really ugly. It's a negative response to something unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointing arising from the self-centered notion that it is undeserved. For disputing, he states, it has the basic meaning of inner reasoning. Okay, so that's, there's nothing that's fairly neutral, but it soon developed the more specific ideas of questioning, doubting, or disputing the truth of a matter. Again, so it has the basic meaning of inner reasoning, but it soon developed the more specific ideas of questioning, doubting, or disputing the truth of a matter. He goes on to conclude that grumbling is essentially emotional, disputing is essentially intellectual, conclusions that were broadly expressed by other commentators and teachers as well. So grumbling would be more an act of the mouth, just a grumbling, that, that talking, that undermining, that biting words, that, that disappointment expressed with a bite to it. And disputing would be more an act of the mind, the undermining, the doubting, the, the dis- disregarding, the, the, the having no respect for truth and its conclusions. But both are reflecting a selfishly proud heart. And that's not where we ought to be. So grumbling and disputing arguably are among the most tolerable, most socially accepted of vulgarities in this world and tragically all too common within the church. And yet, because we have a high view of ourselves and will by nature justify our offenses, some may still press, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, grumbling and disputing. I've watched the news. There's worse things that happen. Well, is it really that big of a deal? Well, I'd imagine the children of those who experienced the glorious works of God as he crushed Egypt and delivered his people from them and directed them to the promised land, they would be like, yeah, it's a really big deal. And maybe not to you, but to the Lord, yes, it's a really big deal. Many a death accompanied these offenses. But if still not persuaded, then recognize for a moment what grumbling and disputing says of your theology. It is a reflection of, of how you view God and how you view man and, and how you view the or, uh, regard the ordering of God in this world. So what is grumbling and disputing communicating? Grumbling and disputing, by their very nature, represent and express a failure to recognize that God is good, that God is just, that God is sovereign, and that God is working out his plans, which by design use a diversity of persons and avail themselves of the suffering and disappointments that accompany this life. You might think, well, that's, I'm not communicating. We are communicating that. Just peel it back and peel it back and peel it back. What are you saying? What are you thinking? Grumbling and disputing, I would argue, lacks the theology of Joseph, whose range of revelation of the character and works of God was but a small fraction of what you've been provided. 
You don't get out of Genesis before Joseph's story is ending. Did he understand the character and work of God in perhaps unique and precious ways? Arguably, yes. But do you have much more revelation and much more to draw from? Yes. And do you see him and his character marked by grumbling and disputing? No, because he was governed by a high view of God and a right view of God. And I would argue grumbling and disputing lacks the theology of James. We walked through James together. There's no excuse for the overwhelming majority of you to say that I lack the theology of James. You have walked through James. And grumbling and disputing says, ah, disregard that. Because what did James tell us at the very outset? He so plainly and graciously called us to consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. And he called us to this not because he was some starry-eyed and pampered man-child who never knew any real struggles or disappointments. That would be really easy to say, consider all joy, because life's just a big marshmallow to sleep on, and it's all very comfortable and very easy. Nothing ever has ever happened to me or anybody I care about. No reason for grumbling, no reason for disputing. It's all joy. No, that wasn't James's experience. No, he was the man whose brother was unjustly crucified, and whose mother's soul was pierced as her son, the Messiah, suffered. The man who participated in the shepherding care of the early church of Jerusalem, a church that suffered and struggled and that progressed under those circumstances. So yeah, James knew struggles. He knew frustrations and disappointments, and yet still commanded us, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. And then how does he build that out? knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what a short-sighted, proud ingratitude we, we vomit when we choose grumbling and disputing. So it is peculiar, is it not? When we have to admit to ourselves and one another that even when seeing it for what it is, it's still hard. We can, we can dress it down and we can say, that's terrible. I want nothing to do with it. And yet I've, and then we look at you, why did you just do that? Why did you just drift there? Or we examine our own hearts and we realize, oh, that's, that has filled my mouth and filled my mind this week. It's still hard. And it's hard to, to walk in the obedience that God's called us to. And so it's good to remember what immediately preceded this command. And that was what we walked through a number of weeks ago, Philippians 2, 12 to 13, the command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And with this, we are reminded that God not only provides the desire, but the means to do as he's commanded. Aren't we grateful that preceded do all things without grumbling and disputing? Because what we have, we have a foundation that God's given us commands. That God has given us the desire to walk in obedience to those commands, and he's given us the means to walk in obedience to his desires and commands. And then, working our way through this section, as we advance past the first command of our passage, we observe how the charge was, how it was built out with an affirmation that in heeding this command to abstain, from grumbling and disputing. What, what is that? What's the, the fruit of it? What's the return off of it? What happens when we heed this command? Well, we show ourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So while we were brought low in our recognition that what has been prohibited is a common element of struggle, we are now uniquely encouraged in our heeding the command. Because in heeding the command to do all things without grumbling or disputing, we demonstrate the work of Christ within his people. A matter that Paul beautifully expressed, expresses in, in his inverting of the prophetic rebuke of Israel. You remember the Deuteronomy, Moses' song. It's a prophetic rebuke to Israel. And, and Paul takes that language and he flips it inside out and uses it as an expression of blessing and encouragement for the church. And so again, what was a prophetic rebuke of Israel who were notorious for their grumbling and disputing by way of, um, by way of transforming now Moses' language, he, Paul affirms the nature and character of the children of God who shine as lights while negotiating a dark and unbelieving world. A people who 
persevere and they're holding fast the word of life and who are winsomely evangelistic and they're holding forth the word of life. And in this testimony, Paul expresses his confidence, his confidence that we will have reason for boasting, which I would argue is an expression of joy. Boasting is not like, oh, I'm so happy. There were, not to unnecessarily stir things up, I have no regard or interest or care about UGA or their success or failures, but there was probably a measure of boasting yesterday. And it wasn't boasting in the sense of, oh, there's a high score. It was, yes, there was joy accompanying that because that's the nature of boasting and others that will, ma- that will find success, and others that will find things that they're happy about. They're boasting, and boasting is joy-rich, isn't it? And he's going to say that there's, there's confidence. I have confidence. There's reason for your boasting, reasons for eruptions of, of righteous and joyful pride. When? In the day of Christ. You and your walking in obedience, you and your heeding this, you and your demonstrating the work of Christ in your lives in this dark and, and dangerous and challenging world are providing grounds for righteous boasting, righteous boasting in the day of Christ. And in this, he says, because he's running, his labor, it hasn't been his spinning himself, it wasn't in vain. Because you're walking in obedience, and you're demonstrating the nature of Christ and his work and his people. And here I'd remind you that Paul speaking to the day of Christ was not some casual point of reference also to frame his primary points of interest, but it was itself the centering of his commands and his own conduct. It was the day of Christ that, that calibrated the, not the introduction of Paul's year, but the totality of his life, his service, sacrifice, and joy. He's giving the command that opens this passage with a view to the day of Christ. He's giving the command that finishes it with a view to the day of Christ. It calibrated his attention here, but not just here, the totality of his life. And so now as we turn our attention to the matter of rejoicing and sharing our joy, it is always with a view to the day of Christ. It's not just be happy people because the world needs happy people. It's be joyful, rejoice in view of the day of Christ. So I exhort us to calibrate our coming year with a view to joy in Christ And in this, to recognize it's ultimately anchored with a view to the day of Christ. When the Lord will return for his beloved, and we will stand before him in judgment, not a condemning judgment as the world will in due time, but an evaluation of works and returning of rewards, a day of completion and joy as we've seen in in the three references, all of which come in Philippians. The only three references that we have to this wording of the day of Christ. And we saw this in Philippians 1.6, for I'm confident of this very thing, that, that he, who God, who began a good work in you, who introduced you to salvation and justified you, he will perfect that work. He will form Christ in you until the day of Christ. Because then it's completed. It's done. The work's finished. He continues on in verse 10, 9 and 10. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ because it was the calibrating day. It was the day in which we are striving and our sanctification is forging forward to a view to the day of Christ. And then in our passage, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast, righteously rejoice, because I did not run in vain, nor labor in vain. So once more, with a view to the day of the excuse me, to the day of Christ, Paul frames and then expresses the final command of this passage. Philippians 2, 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, this portion of the passage is is interesting in that Paul employs language of uh, sacrifice and perhaps an element of sacrifice we're less familiar with. It's not that he's, uh, he doesn't introduce language of sacrifice, Romans 12, Romans 16, and a variety of other texts are probably coming to mind for you. And it's not that Paul doesn't use language of sacrifice, but the nature of the language of sacrifice is a little bit different here. Again, maybe one that we're, we're less familiar with, that of the drink offering. And then there's Paul's valuation of his experience of sacrifice. 
that of joy, a joy that is so rich that he enthusiastically shares it with others. But then comes a command for others. Now it's not just, I rejoice, I share my joy, but now not just, hey, this is a great idea, but an, an exhortation, a command. You rejoice, and you share your joy. Again, not an encouragement, not just an encouragement, but a command, which is accompanied by a second complimentary command for them also to share their joy. So rejoice and share your joy. Again, all framed with a view to the, this language of, of sacrifice and an intensive engagement with joy, all of which is introduced with a grammatical structure that we refer to as the first-class conditional clause, which could be read, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, and I am. This isn't a hypothetical for Paul. He's not saying... Here's a joy-rich passage rooted in sacrificial language with a view to the day of Christ. And you know what? Even if this was the case, even if I happen to be poured out as a drink offering, I, I would rejoice. No, he's saying, even if I was being poured out as a drink offering, and I am. This is my experience. My experience is I've, I've, I've become part of the company of God's sacrifices, and it's expressed as a drink offering. This is Paul's relationship to the Philippians. He's being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial service of their faith. Now, we know that this is a metaphor, as Paul's not literally being poured out onto a sacrifice, an expression of service that could not be rendered more than once, as there's no retrieving a liquid that's poured out over a burning sacrifice. As in that moment, what happens to it? Well, it's fully spent. And what happens to the, to the liquid? It's just vaporized and the vapors ascend to the heavens. And that was the idea behind a drink offering is full consumption and the, the aroma reaching up to heaven. So while a metaphor, it magnificently captures the nature of Paul's service, one of being fully spent and sending forth an aroma pleasing to God. And Paul says, you want to understand the nature of my service to you, beloved Philippians, you friends of mine, you who are walking well, you could do better, but you're doing really well. This is the nature of my relationship. I'm spending myself for you. I'm going to fully spend myself, and it will be as one who is exhausted and yet an aroma that ascends to God. But of all the range of sacrifices that he could have picked, he could have picked burn offerings, wave offerings, free will offerings, any number of offerings. He could have said, I'm like this, or this is a good picture. Why a drink offering? Well, many have concluded that Paul had a view to the end of his life here, or more precisely, to his imminent martyrdom by way of the Roman authorities, a threat or concern that ultimately did not come to pass during this imprisonment. They view this image of being poured out as a picture of, of finality, an irretrievable sacrifice. And in support of their conclusion, 2 Timothy is cited as it provides the only other New Testament use of this term for drink offering and is plainly used to picture the conclusion of Paul's life and service. He writes, 2 Timothy 4, 5-8, But you, be, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I've gotten messages, uh, letters, texts, voicemails, otherwise, where the person wasn't there, but the communication came through, and was, I was impacted. I was impacted by their words, grieved, burdened by the weight of, of, of what was being expressed. I can only imagine Timothy receiving this letter, and, and this being the final letter from Paul, and the weight and the emotions that would have swept over him as he reads those words of his beloved mentor and friend, the one that would refer to him as, Timothy, you're, you're my child in the faith. And he's saying that, Timothy, I'm, I'm going to be irretrievably poured out. And I'm no longer going to be with you. It's a matter that it was plainly understood, plainly, pl plainly stated, plainly understood. This was the conclusion 
of Paul's life and labors. He is being poured out as a drink offering. So I am sympathetic to the conclusion that Paul is expressing a potential conclusion of his life and ministry here. Sympathetic, but no longer persuaded. Now to be clear, I too previously had been persuaded of this conclusion, but it does not fit the context of Philippians. And that's, that's where the point of tension comes in. I was persuaded when I, I parachuted in and taught, on of all passages, Epaphroditus, which is before us. You might think, why would someone, of all the passages in Philippians, why would you teach on Epaphroditus? Well, in a few weeks, you're going to be like, why wouldn't everybody teach on Epaphroditus? And why has nobody here been named Epaphroditus? But I, I parachuted in, I looked at the surrounding context, I wrestled with the text, and I came to the conclusion, yes, this is likely a view to the end, at least in the moment it appeared that way. But we're not parachuting, are we? We've been trudging and wrestling and working through Philippians 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, all the way to where we are now. And we have to bring that to bear as we consider what was the nature of the context and how he used this language here. And I would encourage you, just consider how Paul has and will speak to the Philippians about his circumstances. We go back a little bit to chapter 1, verses 23 to 26. But I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That's death. That's the conclusion of his race. He's finished. He's over. And it's good because he'll be with Christ. For that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. That does not sound like someone who's potentially going to be martyred any moment. Now, could it happen? Yes, it still could. His life is in the balance. He has to go before Caesar. But that's not the expectation. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus and me, through my coming to you again. And then we skip forward to where we haven't quite gotten yet. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately. This is um, sending, um, I believe, Timothy here, and then he's going to send Epaphroditus, but Epaphroditus goes first. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I evaluate my own circumstances. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will be coming shortly. He was anticipating coming to Philippi. He was not speaking to an imminent death as he was in 2 Timothy where he directly states, the time of my departure has come. No, rather he was using the language of being fully spent. Well, you can't do that but once with a drink offering, but Paul would be spend himself and spend himself and spend himself. And so my conclusion is that the image of a drink offering is designed to express one being fully spent, but also of one's service in relation to the sacrificial service of faithful gospel co-laborers, which is such a, not just pastorally kind, it's just a mature kindness to say that it's not all about me and my sacrifices and my labors, but Paul would be willing to say, my offering is going to accompany and complement your service, your sacrifices. It's the language that one might use to express, again, the complementary service expressed by mutually sacrificing friends. And I think this may become more clear when we consider the nature of the drink offering as it is an accompanying sacrifice, an accompanying offering. There's a number of references and texts, if they don't worry about writing them all down, I'm just going to go through the, the nature of the sacrifices without the, the, the references. So the, the range of drink offerings and when it accompanied sacrifice. The daily sacrifices were accompanied by grain sacrifices and a drink offering. At the conclusion of a Nazarite vow, they offered sacrifices which included a drink offering. There were special offerings prescribed for Israel when they took possession of the land to include drink offerings. There were sacrifices for unintentional failures that were accompanied by a drink offering. And to this list, you can also include Sabbath offerings, monthly offerings, Passover offerings, offerings for the Feast of Weeks, offerings to the Feast of Trumpets, atonement offerings, and even the various feasts also had an offering element to it. Feast of Harvest, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Booths. 
And so you can, you can plainly see this was not an obscure element of worship, but a staple offering that appears to have accompanied a range of other offerings. One that, from what I understood, would have come later in the sacrifices. It was poured over that which was already being yielded up to God. So it effectively was a finishing element of the sacrifice. Now consider that as you hear Paul's statement here. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, it doesn't stop there. If I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, and I am, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Philippians, you're being faithful. Your sacrificial service before God is honoring and pleasing to him. And I'm, I'm not here to make it happen because if I'm not here, it doesn't happen. I'm complimenting and accompanying your sacrifice and service. So listen to that passage. Listen to our passage one more time, but consider how the Philippians likely heard it or my slight smoothed out modification of it. Beloved, I'm being poured out upon your offering your sacrificial service, the spending of myself in service to God is an accompanying and finishing work to your sacrificial service. And in this, I find great joy, so much joy that I want it to spill over to you. I would argue Paul was not forecasting the prospect of his death, but rather providing a beautiful picture for the Philippians of his dying daily and the joy that accompanies this in shared service with them. Paul was being poured out. He was being absolutely spent. And note something important with this, though. He was being poured out. He was being absolutely spent. You see, Paul was not the acting agent here. No. It was God who was pouring Paul out and his service alongside the Philippians and their service. And Paul's response to this was that he found it grounds for great joy. He was not grumbling. He was not disputing. He wasn't saying, God, why do I have to be spent like this? This is exhausting. It, it's, it's wearing me out. Or why must it be poured out in shared sacrificial service with them? I'm the apostle. I'm the one that, you know, that leads and lays foundations for the church. They're just believers. They're just part of the church. No, such was not the discourse of Paul, but with a view to the day of Christ, he was erupting with joy and is being so used in this and shared service with others. We're not surprised by this, are we? No. Because we've become acquainted with Paul's sacrificial, others-oriented commitment to the progress and joy of their faith. You remember, again, as we just read a moment ago in chapter 1, verses 21 to 25, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But it's not just about me, right? We don't do church solo. And I do not know what I will choose, but I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So an others-oriented disposition. Oh, we haven't gotten to Philippians chapter 2, and he's laying the foundations for it. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Or perhaps the command for the fulfillment of his joy comes to mind. Because you know that his joy was bound up in their good, as his joy was that they would be that they would embrace a humble, others-oriented unity of mind and the Lord. Remember, Philippians 2, 2 to 4, fulfill my joy. That sounds so selfish, except that it wasn't. It was in full service to them. Fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So of course he finds such joy in the giving of himself so fully in this manner. As such was the nature of Paul. He gave himself wholly in service to Christ's church. 
2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, so I will most gladly spend and be fully spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-12, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. In this way, having fond affection for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become beloved to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are witnesses, and so is God, of how devotely and righteously and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and bearing witness to each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. Again, we can plainly see Paul's great joy and sacrificial service to the Philippians. But don't miss this. Don't miss the affirmation of the Philippians' sacrificial service too. As Paul was framing not his own, but the Philippians' acts of faithfulness and service as expressions of worship. Ones that were as tangible and real as an animal being submitted to God for sacrificial worship. So what would have been the nature of the Philippian sacrifice? We, we plainly can see Paul spent himself, he gave himself, he taught, he led, he prayed, he did all these things. We can get our, our, our minds around that, the nature of the, the full giving himself. But what was the nature of the Philippians' participation in their sacrificial service? Well, in the immediate passage, we can note that it was, a, again, a sacrificial service. The two terms, sacrifice and service, can be viewed independently, but there's good grammatical grounds to see them as a unit, hence their sacrificial service or, or service yielded to God that cost them something. And it was their sacrificial service of faith. Therefore, a sacrificial service that was an expression of or a fleshing out of their living faith. Their faith which expressed itself in, in tangible and costly acts of service. And we see this expressed throughout the letter. We have a, a range of, of samples for you. In chapter 1, we observed the Philippians have fellowshiped in the gospel with Paul from the time of the church's challenging foundations through the present. What a testimony. He's not saying, Philippians, get your act together, but how does he start the book? You, you fellowship with me from the very first day, from the time in which the, the Lord drew the first believer, um, Lydia, to himself and, 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 and began the works of the foundations of the church in Philippi. You've labored, you've fellowshiped with me since that day to the present. And the Philippians have been fellow partakers of Paul in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's so much of what he did. And they, he says, you're partners, you're fellow partakers. You are, you are part of this ministry team, as it were. The Philippians have faithfully endured righteous suffering. We saw that at the end of chapter 1, that God not only graciously gifts you belief, but suffering, a suffering of a like nature to Paul's own. In chapter 2, we will observe the Philippians sent Paul an extraordinary minister to accompany his needs, a, a man who came near to death in his spending of himself in service to Paul. So they send Epaphroditus, who, who labors in such a way that Paul says, commend this man. He almost died in service to Christ. Not that he's some weak person. He, he gave himself. And he brought with him your gift, your service, your grace to me. And then in chapter 4, we'll observe um, there were notable Philippians um, who were gospel contenders alongside of Paul. You know, that's in 4.3. And we think, well, that's in the context of corrective restoration. But, but he doesn't just say, hey, Judea and Syntyche, they just need to get their act together. She says they're gospel content. They've contended with me for the gospel. The only people that are commended that way. And then in 4.14, the Philippians fellowship with Paul in his affliction. You know, we think about Paul and his suffering, Paul and his afflictions, and Paul and his troubles, and he says, you're, you're part of this with me. And that was sacrifice. And on more than one occasion, the Philippians ministered to Paul by way of, of fiscal support. You might think, well, I don't know, is that, uh, is that really, is that something that's, is that sacrificial? Absolutely. You read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and you'll have a very clear view to what's happening here in Philippians. They generously gave. And they generously gave to the Lord by way of supporting Paul. 
So multiple expressions of sacrificial service to Christ, of which Paul was a partner and beneficiary. So we can broadly say the Philippians sacrificially gave, gave of their time. Again, we're mindful of our time. Some of you might be thinking, you're stealing mine right now. When's it end? If you're here often, you'll know that it will end soon. Enough. Um, but they gave of their time. They, that, their, your time is worth something. They gave of that. They sacrificed that. They gave of their resources. They, they, they had and didn't have. They gave out of their poverty. They gave out of their riches. They gave. They gave generously to Paul in the work of the ministry. They gave of their people. Epaphroditus was not the leftover Philippian. Like, boy, what do we do with this guy? He just keeps begging for something to do. Let's send them to Paul. You know how far Rome is? That'll be a long time. Paul says, this guy is par excellence. They gave of their prayers. So many people, it's disheartening in one sense to, I want to be, be involved in ministry, and then let's follow, that question, let's, let's follow that request up with, what's the nature of your praying? Well, you know, I struggle to pray. Well, ministry right there. It costs you something, but not, not much. Your time, your strength, your focus. They sacrificed in prayer. And they sacrificed of their strength in a range of ways. They gave of themselves. They were spending themselves. And as such is why we commend them that they were a good church. And a church worthy of being emulated. You know, sometimes we we see the extraordinary works of Paul and the apostles and we genuinely strive to heed the call to follow their examples. That's, that's commanded. That's expected. Follow my example. Be like me like I am like Christ. But is it not encouraging to see the example of these believers? We know a, a handful of names and that's it. Eutyche, Syntyche, Clement, Epaphroditus. Maybe there's another one or two that I'm, I'm not drawn from the memory banks here. We know just a handful of Philippians, and yet what a, a faithful and encouraging church that we as a body could mimic. These otherwise common men and women who were so preciously valuable in sacrificial service to Paul. He doesn't say, I really appreciate it. I'm going to sacrifice to God, and I want y'all to learn about this and follow my example. He says, your sacrificial service to the Lord is what I'm giving myself an accompaniment with. Again, a sacrificial service that Paul effectively joins. He does not offer it for them. They have done that. Rather, he caps it off, as it were, with his own spending of himself. And with this, it may be worth pausing for just a moment and considering this matter of the Philippians' sacrifice. And with this, consider what is the nature of a good worshiper, the nature of one who participates in sacrificial service of God. And we have some helpful things to work with right here in our immediate passage. If we want to, if, if, we've, if we've said, you know what, we, we do want to be like the Philippians. We, we do want to join in a like work. How can we? Well, we have our starter kit, 214 to 18. Easy place to start because we're right here. And we could explore some more things that we've already covered regarding the fellowship of the gospel, or explore things that are coming soon, such as their generous giving to the work of Paul and the ministry and the care of the larger church. But again, we have a magnificent starter kit, as it were, here in 2.14 to 18. So let's limit our immediate, our attention to our immediate text and consider how we might be useful in a like sacrificial service as well. And I would propose we have six things right here before us. First, do not grumble or dispute. It's not a mystery that that one was coming, is it? I've shared before I'm so grateful for the nature of, you know, a lot of times we, we, we commend expository teaching, and that's, that's a good thing, and I'm grateful for it. And I think that's, by design, the, the best way to, to commonly approach the, the diet of our teaching through the Scriptures. But I'm so grateful that we didn't have a matter of somebody grumbling or disputing, and it finally got to the point where somebody's like, you probably need to give a message on that. You, you need to make them feel bad or to convict people or to help them realize it's wrong. It's just part of the diet, but it's a hard part of the diet, and it's the first element. Do not grumble or dispute. It not only makes you ugly, it's dishonoring to God and gravely diminishes your usefulness. Second, cultivate holiness. So, well, yes, of course. No, cultivate holiness in your thoughts, your speech, and your conduct. 
we, we looked at that language, that precious language in which Paul implores for the church, be blameless, innocent, unblemished sacrifices. The Lord is not only worthy of such sacrifices, he expects them. You don't go through the, the Old Testament sacrificial system and observe the nature and precision and costliness of the sacrifices and then just walk away and say, oh, I'm in Christ now. Give blameless, innocent, unblemished sacrifices. Such is the nature of children of God. Third, let your light shine in this dark world. You know, he draws from Daniel and I'm going to shine as lights. And, and that's the nature of what we are to do. Shine, shine as lights. Fourth, hold fast and hold forth the word of life. There are innumerable people in your sphere of influence and experience that need the hope of the gospel. This is, you want to talk about, well, I don't, how's that sacrifice? Paul says, I'm giving, I'm yielding, believing Gentiles to God as sacrifice. Conclusion to the book of Romans. Fifth, keep the day of Christ ever before you as you run and labor well. Never may it be said that you ran or labored in vain. Always be fixed on the day of Christ, the day of Christ. That's what's going to calibrate us. That's what's going to source our joy. That's what's going to be keeping us on the, the track, as it were. And sixth, spend yourself in service. Maybe you're like, well, that's, that's awfully selfish. You... You're set aside for this. I, I am. And I, I sincerely hope that uh, you know, the Lord gives grace for me to finish. Full. I've told you before, my goal for life is, it's fairly simple. I want to be faithful, for sure. There's a lot of other sub-goals. But one goal is I want to finish the book I'm teaching. So I'm most vulnerable between books. Lord, just let me finish this book. Let me finish this work. Because I don't, I don't care if, if this is it. I want to spin myself. I want it to be Wow, what, what happened to him? He's a mess. Yeah, he just exhausted himself in service. But you, yeah, you're set apart for that. No, 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 no. I'm set apart for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So exhaust yourselves. Spend it. Yield your lives. Leave it all in the field as it were. And don't worry about what it will require of you. Don't worry about well, what's that going to do to me. When it's all said and done, you get a new body. Wear this one out. What a shame to get to the day of Christ and be like, whew, came through, took good care, stayed moisturized, slept well, and ate well, didn't strain, didn't strain too hard. You know, Paul was probably, can you imagine he's writing Timothy? He's probably an absolute mess. Suspend yourselves. And to this I need to, I need to add the command Rejoice. Rejoice and share your joy. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all, and you also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul found great joy in his participating in their shared sacrificial service and he loved to see that joy expand to others. And that's the nature of joy, is it not? It's naturally contagious. Notably when there are shared affections, goals, and desires. And we see precious example of this, uh, examples of this in Luke's gospel. We're just going to give a few as we come to a conclusion here. The first is one that maybe you're more familiar with because of the nature of the celebrating the incarnation of Christ um, in terms of not only uh, Christ, but even John the Baptist, the forerunner. So Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 58, we read, now the, time, um, now the time was fulfilled for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had magnified his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. They, she was joyful, and they entered her joy. Why? Because they had like affections, like convictions, like points of, of joy. It's natural. It's contagious. Luke 15, verses 5 to 6, there's a reason this parable makes sense. And he, and talking about the, the lost sheep, when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. We, that's a natural response to, to recovering something that was lost. But then 
follow along the, the contagious nature of this. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found, found my sheep which was lost. The like sentiment of, um, or what woman, if she has ten drachmas and loses one drachma and does not, li- does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search for it carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the drachma which, was, which I had lost. And again, such is the nature of joy. It is contagious. The purer the joy, the greater the likeness of mind, the faster it spreads. And this is how the church body was designed, even commanded to operate. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. But being of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble, do not be wise in your own mind. Boy, that sounds like somebody that wrote another letter about being humble, others-oriented unity of mind and calling us to mutual joy. So, because this is how the church body was designed, even commanded to operate, it's most natural when Paul is being poured out that he's choosing to rejoice and to even share his joy with his fellow sacrificial worshipers. And in this way, Paul calls upon his friends to join him, to mimic him, to be joy-rich and joy-spreaders. So what say you? What will you be resolved to mortify, and what will you be resolved to cultivate? My exhortation for all of us is to hear this text in a like manner as I would say the Philippians did. Beloved, I'm being poured out upon your offering, your sacrificial service. The spending of myself in service to God is an accompanying and finishing work to your sacrificial service. And in this, I find great joy. So much joy that I want to spill it over to you. And I want you to have such a joy that it also spills over to others. And in hearing this, I hope that we will also join the Philippians in the spending of ourselves in sacrificial service with a view to the day of Christ. A sacrificial service in which we come alongside one another and in such rejoice and share our joy. A sacrificial service that requires a very precise calibration. Namely, a consistent and anticipating view to the day of Christ. And through Christ... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of, of lips that confess his name. And let us not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the, the testimony that you've provided through your scriptures that when Paul express for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He goes on to not just plainly say, this is exactly what I mean, this is exactly what it looks like, but unpacks that force, directs us to a a humble, others-oriented unity of mind in which Christ is the perfect expression and example, and directing us to, to, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, and then here, as he's already advanced past a challenging command that we've all drifted toward and strayed toward, he's showing us this is a sacrificial life. This is a life that spends itself in service to God and others. This is a life that, that sees the value and what others are laboring and giving themselves in and affirming that and then coming alongside of it, joining that sacrifice in an exhaustive way. And Lord, we, we see that in such is joy, a tremendous joy, a joy that we are to cultivate and that we are to share. And so as we think about being on the, the precipice of a new year, it, it happens every, every year where we come to this moment. Every year, maybe we reflect in different measures, but it does give us opportunity. How will we direct and calibrate ourselves? What will be the, the manner in which we govern ourselves and What are our ambitions and goals and hopes that when this year, this coming year expires, that we can look back and say, in God's kindness, these things were done. 
Lord, may it be a year filled with joy-rich sacrifice of self with a view to the day of Christ. If that's what fills our year, then we've yielded back to you a pleasing life, one in which there can be much boasting, in which we're insulated from any danger of having run or labored in vain. And so, Lord, we ask, would you give us the grace to so walk, to so care for one another, and to so help and exhort one another? It's, it's challenging, it's hard, and we're not, we're not always going to even want to do it. But we give thanks to you that you not only give us the command, but the will and the means. And so may by your help, again, we be filled with joy, a joy that has a view to, again, your exaltation, your great day, a day in which we've fully spent ourselves in preparation for. And we thank you now as we direct our attention to another expression of worship. Um, we think about the, the sacrifice of Christ. It wasn't, we can't, we can't compare that. We can't say, well, Paul poured himself out, you know, like Christ poured himself out. No, Christ pouring himself out was more, more perfect than what we can ever do. And we recognize that uh, he who was fully God, fully man, did what God required and man had to. And we thank you, Lord, that your sacrifice is obviously the most perfect expression. It was the, the blood as that of a precious lamb, more, more valuable than gold or silver. And it has returned a, a sufficient, a well-pleasing acceptance from God the Father. And in such, you will always receive the glory. And so may we remember your death in just a moment here and remember it with a view to your return, a view to the day of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.